This book is about life under the sun. The choir sang about dying and going to be with Jesus. This book does not tell you how to die to go to be with Jesus. It doesn't tell you how to go to heaven. It tells you how to live between now and the time you get there. It tells you that God is controlling your life. It also points out something else we need to know. You know, many of us begin this Christian life. We just start off it. We get going right. We believe in Christ. We begin memorizing Scripture. We begin reading the Bible. We begin witnessing for Christ. Oh, the joy of the Lord is in our hearts. And then someplace along the line, it's hard to tell when it happened, our spiritual growth stalls. We look around. We haven't committed any great growth sin. So why, uh, why is it that the Bible is no longer thrilling our hearts as it did before? Why is it that the songs of Zion don't uh, give us the same zing as they did before? Generally, it's because we have adapted a style of carnality. A style of carnality that is not socially improper. A style of carnality that fits um, many of our fellow Christians. We see it all around. We adapted as a way of life, and we failed to see that we're on a we're on a dead end street that's going nowhere. My wife and I took a trip up north many years ago, and we came to this little town, and we got off it to go get a bite to eat and pulled off the freeway right onto Main Street. This is a beautiful little town. The street was lined with big houses. We arrived at the business center. It was, it was a well-kept business center. We find a nice place to have lunch. And, of course, this being Main Street, I just assumed that it would take me right back onto the freeway. So I started down it. You know, like all towns, I got to that section of town where the houses were not big anymore. They were shacks. And then suddenly I came to a dead end, a big railing right across the thing. And up there I could see the freeway. But I was down here and I couldn't get there. The only way I could actually get there was to go all the way back till we came in. You know, there are many Christians, many of us as Christians, notice please, I include myself, many of us as Christians, we're going along the freeway with Christ. And then suddenly we take a little detour. And we don't realize it's a, it's a big detour. Oh, we think we're just going to go up here a little bit. And just, on, just a little fling in carnality for a second and back on again. Only to discover there are many other Christians there and we suddenly begin to think this is the main freeway. After all, it's Main Street. It's where most people are. 
And that's what he's talking about. If you'll notice the sixth chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes, look at that first verse. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men. And this word evil here, we generally translate it to what means sin, but that's not the meaning of this word particularly. It's the same word you find in some of the prophets translated burden, the burden of these different prophets. Jeremiah had burdens, it's evil that he was talking about. It's the word for judgment, you see? It's connected with sin because sin produces judgment. He said there's a great evil that is prevalent among men. That word prevalent, you'll notice in the King James, it says it's common among men. Others say it's serious. Actually, what it's trying to say is that this evil is widespread. It's a cancer that has gone through society, spreading itself into every member of the society. Notice, he identifies those who are afflicted with this evil in verse 2. He says, A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing. There's one man, the rich man. Oh, you say, that doesn't include me. I only have three million. I know a friend who has ten million, so therefore I, he's rich, I'm poor. Rich is a relative term, isn't it? I remember as a missionary, I received, my wife and I received the sum total of $750 a year. And I arrived in Africa, and I discovered that this sum total of $750 a year was considered by the African to be very rich. And so my wife and I had a privilege of being rich for a while. See the point? Rich is a, is a relative term, so when he's talking about the rich man, more likely talking about you, talking about me. Another thing it says, this rich man had wealth. God gave him riches. God gave him wealth. Wealth is that which one turns, when one turns his money into a tangible asset that continues to serve him. And notice that this is also an honorable man. Some rich men are feared He's talking about a man to whom he gave riches and wealth and honor. This person is a recognized leader in the valued areas of the society. Then it says something else. It says his soul lacked nothing. Look what it said there. His soul lacked nothing of all that he desired talking about this fellow that you can't think of what to give him for Christmas because he got everything. That's what he's talking about. Now he says among these people is a great evil. You say, you've got to be kidding. Riches, give
by God, honor given by God, so the man has all that he wants, and that's evil. Then he talks about somebody else, too, look at verse 3. If a man father a hundred children and lives many years, how many they may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, he does not even have a proper burial. Then I say, better than miscarriage in his. So you see that? Here's another man. The family man. He says he fathered a hundred children. Not only gave, was he the father of them, but he fathered them. He took care of them. He was the father to them. He fulfilled his responsibilities as a family man. Boy, isn't that wonderful to have a family, a large family? To be a member of such a family, isn't that a wonderful thing? He says it's a great evil. Then he points out another problem. Look at verse 6. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice, and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. There's another one. The man who lives to a ripe old age. It's an exaggeration when it's preached about uh, living to be 2,000 years old, of course. Methuselah didn't even reach the first one, and he was the oldest man that ever was around. He got to 962, a little bit short of 1,000. Not talking about really about a thousand. He's talking about living a long, exceptional time. Now that's a blessing from God, isn't it? You know, even the Ten Commandments mentions that. In the twelfth verse of Exodus 20, where we have the Ten Commandments, we have what Paul says was the first commandment was promised. The commandment that was given and a promise was attached to it. And it says this. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. If I were to ask you what's the three greatest blessings you could get on earth, wouldn't you be tempted to say wealth and honor, a big family, and let me hang around a long time to enjoy it? Isn't that about it? Huh? When you think of old age, don't think of these, don't think of a, you know, some of us get older, we get, you know, need glasses, got a big bulge, and, you know, so that's, that, that's, that, that's connected with old age too, but nothing about old age. Have you noticed ladies will never tell you how old they are as long as they're 70? When they slip past that magic number of 70 and get to 80 or 85, they can't tell you how, often enough how old they are. And when they get to be 90, you can't shut them off. And when they get 100, they go on television. <laughs> Old age is a blessing from God. It's a wonderful to live around a long time. He says, I see a great evil. I see a common evil in this thing. Well, just, just, just what is that evil that he sees? What is that evil? Look at it, will you please? 
Go back to verse 2. The rich man again. A rich man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. But God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. Just think of it. What is he saying here? What is the great evil? A man whom, to whom God has given riches, wealth, honor, everything his soul desires, but he can't enjoy them. He doesn't really enjoy them. He's like that new kid that gets a toy, plays with the toy for five minutes, pushes away, and says, Mama, give me a new one. Don't really enjoy them. I, I don't know how much your bank account has in it. Uh, have you enjoyed it? Huh? Be honest now. That's a common evil. The next one, verse 3. If a man father a hundred children and lives many years, however many they may they be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things. There it is again. And he does not even have a proper burial. Then I say, better than miscarriage than he. And he goes on to emphasize that. He says, better is a child that is aborted before it is born that a man who has a great family and the family is all around him but he doesn't enjoy them. Isn't that a tragedy? Isn't that a tragedy? Do you enjoy your children? I remember not long ago a, a young woman saying to another young woman, when do these little things become blessings? After the 13th diaper for that day, that begins to wonder, huh? Yeah. But isn't that a common thing? How many of us really enjoy our family? He goes on and he says there about that, that aborted baby, he says, for it comes in futility and goes into obscurity. Its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun, and it never knows anything. But it is better off than the man who fathered a, a hundred children and was not satisfied, never enjoyed. By the way, just pause for a moment. Those who think that abortion isn't anything serious, you'll notice, please, that the Kohelet here refers to them as real people. Keep that in mind. They're real people. Sure. But they're real people. Their names are not known here, but they're known up there. Now, I want you to see this. 
then goes on to the next thing. Look at verse 6. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to the same place. See the point? How old are you? Oh, you may be uh, 80. You may be 50. You may be 15. Are you enjoying it? That's the point. That's the point. That's the evil. Men having wealth and honor and not enjoying it. Men having family all around them, wonderful people, not enjoying it. Being a member of a great family, not enjoying it. Living. God giving you the blessing of life, of living, and you're living a good, long life. But what? It's a drudge. You're not enjoying it. That's a common evil. Now, of course, we face another question. Why? The reason for the common evil. Go back, please, to verse 2, would you? Look at it. Verse 2. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires, but, here it is, God has not empowered him to eat from them. For a foreigner enjoys them, this is vanity and a severe affliction. You get it? God. God gave the wealth. God gave the honor. But God did not give the power to enjoy eating. Why not? That's the point. You see? The gift of wealth and the gift of honor does not give one the power to enjoy it. Joy, rejoicing, does not come from the wealth does not come from the honor. And yet how many times you and I pray for these blessings from God. This is a blessing from God. God gives wealth. God gives honor. And you say, if God would give me wealth, God would give me honor, then I will be having what I want. I will be satisfied. Negative. The wealth, the honor, does not bring with it the joy. That comes from God alone. 
Look at the father in verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they be, but his soul is not satisfied, there it is. Oh, there are many families that are saying, Lord, bless our home with a child. If you'll give me a child, I'll have what I want. I'll thank you for it. The child will be my care. The child will give me joy. My family. How many of us live our lives for our family? Moses says to this man, doesn't even get a proper burial. Maybe it's because he outlives his children. But there's some more to it than that. I remember once when I was in, we're talking with a man in Africa about receiving Christ as his Savior. He said something to me I didn't understand. He said to me, I can't. And I said, why not? He looked at me and he said, who would bury me? That floored me. See, I'd gone through personal evangelism classes. I'd gone through uh, training on how to lead people to Christ. In, in, but they never taught me that one. See? What do you say next? I can't receive Christ because if I receive Christ, who will bury me? Now, you see, he's not talking about who's going to put him in the ground. That's not the problem. Who's going through the rituals that are necessary as my soul leaves this earth? That's what he was talking about. You see, that man realized that when he accepted Christ as his personal Savior, he was going to be cutting himself off from the old ways of the village and the old religion and the ways of his family. And they would more than likely cut him off. And when, it, when he died and came time to die, they would not be able to mourn for him. They would not be able to go through the rituals that would give him the correct departure from this life. And at the end of one year, they would not have another great celebration to celebrate his the fact that he had gone on to be with the fathers, all of this would not be his and he would miss it. And that was very necessary and very essential because of, it connected him between this life and those in the next life. And he was puzzled with it all. You have a great big family around you and you say, these families are going to take care of me. These families are going to be my joy and my rejoicing and they're going to be great. But you know there's something? How much joy do you really get out of your family? You see, the blessing, again, does not bring with it the joy. The one who gives the blessing must give the joy. It comes from God. Look at the next one. If an old man, verse 7 again, all a man's, pardon me, verse 6, excuse me, even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, there it is again. How long are you living? How much joy are you having? These are blessings from God. God gives us his blessing. But listen, the blessings do not carry with them the joy. The blessings do not bring to us the joy. The riches do not bring the joy. The honor does not bring the joy. The family does not bring the joy. 
The long life does not bring the joy. This must come from God. That's a very important thing to see. And so many of us in our Christian life, you know, we accept Jesus as our Savior, and we start barreling down the freeway with him, and we're memorizing Scripture, and we're praying, and we're relating to him, and we're having a wonderful time fellowshipping with God. And suddenly we pull off on the side street. Lord, bless me with this. Lord, bless me with that. Lord, bless me with this. With your blessings, Lord, I'll receive. And God says, no, you won't. You pull off on that side street where you're going to follow the blessings and think the blessings are going to give you, you're going to be on a street that goes nowhere. A street that goes nowhere. Now, he emphasizes this is a natural desire of man in verses 7 and 8. Look at it. Verses 7 and 8. All a man labors, all a, a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. That's a proverb saying everything that you do, everything that you do is to seek out to find this joy. That's a natural thing of man. Everything that you and I do is to reach out to find this joy. Whatever work we do, whatever connections we have, whatever friendships we have, we have our family and so forth, all of it is being the reaching for this joy. And then he says in verse 8, for what advantage does a wise man have over the fool? What advantage does a poor have, man have, knowing how to walk before the living? What's he saying? He said the wise man, the poor man, the fool, whatnot, none of them, none of them know what to do in this situation. Every one of them says, give me the blessing and I'll get the joy. Every one of them misses this picture entirely. And he points out to us another reason why we do not get it. That verse 10. Whatever exists has already been named. And it is known what man is, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he. For where there are many words which increase futility, what then is the advantage to a man? For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow. But who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? You know that tenth verse is very interesting? Look at it. It's the key to understanding what's here. Whatever exists has already been named. Simply put, that is saying, what has been, has been named. God's in control. There are no accidents in God's control life. Not in anybody's life. God's in control of it. Then what's the problem? Look at the next phrase. And it is known what man is. Or again, if you could read it in the original, it's simply this. It is what is man. It is what is man. Now, that word man there is not the word for an individual man. That's the word Adam, and it refers to mankind as it came from Adam. The name man here actually means red earth. 
Now, you've heard of a few rednecks, haven't you? Listen, all of us are from Adam, the red earth. You see, what does that mean? Will you turn with me to 1 Corinthians, please? 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. Will you look, please, at verse 47? First Corinthians 15, verse 47. The first man is from the earth. There it is. The first man is from the red earth. He is earthy. The second man, that's the Lord Jesus, is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. You and I take right after our great-great-granddaddy Adam. We're earthy. We're earthy. We're of the earth. And you say, what's that got to do with it? Look at chapter 2. Back to chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at verse 14. But a natural man, here it is, see, a natural man, a man just like Adam, the earthly man, the child of Adam, that's what you are, that's what I am, see? but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Why is it that God can give a man riches, wealth, family, long life, and man doesn't enjoy him? Because there's a spiritual dimension to this. There's a spiritual dimension to this. And the natural man is incapable of seeing it and understanding it and perceiving it. Why not? Well, we'll go back up to verse 9. Just as it is written, things which, things which I have not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, of that all that God has prepared for those who love him. That's the point. See? The natural man can only understand what he can see with his senses, what he can see with his eyes, hear with his ears, taste with his tongue, handle with his hands. He is shut up to his senses. He can only understand what his senses will teach him. He can build great machines to help his eyes. He can build machines to help his ears. But he's still locked into his senses. He can be the greatest scientist in the world, but he can't get to the spiritual dimension of things because all he has is 
his physical being to help him learn anything. So he can receive the wealth, he can receive the honor, he can receive the children, he can receive the long life, but he can't enjoy it because he can't get to the spiritual dimension of it. He can count his children, he can count his wealth, he can count his years, but he cannot see God's relationship to this, and he doesn't have any relationship to God in it. And these things do not satisfy. They come from God, and this man doesn't have any relationship to God. He doesn't have any ability to know God. He can't reach out and touch God. Or he can culturally develop a God, but he has to know the real God at all. He's a natural man. Now, when God created Adam, do you ever notice what God did? When God created Adam and put Adam on the earth, he was earthy. Don't forget that. He had this real limitation. So what did God do? Why, every day God came down and had a conversation with him. Every day God took Adam for a walk and began to talk to him and to give him the spiritual dimension. How was that spiritual dimension supposed to be? It was not to be received by the things around him. It was to be received by God's personal relationship to him. God gave Adam wealth, honor, truth. But they were not going to be the blessing without God himself being there to tell him what to do with it. The blessings do not bring the joy. It's the blesser who brings the joy. And the wealth, and the honor, and the children, and the long life without God, without a personal relationship with God, there's no joy. It's not there. That's what Jesus was talking about when Nicodemus came to him. And Nicodemus was asking him, and he said, listen, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot what? No, somebody said enter. That's not what he said. Read your text again. What did he say? He cannot see the kingdom of God. What's the matter with this spiritual man? He said, what's the matter with me? Why is it? I have wealth. I have honor. I have family. I have long life. Why can't I enjoy it? I can't see why I cannot enjoy it. reason because you can't see God and until you're born again you never will be able to understand it you can't enter into the spiritual dimension of the reality of life Job had the same trouble in fact if you look back there to the book of Ecclesiastes before we look at Job look back there in the 6th the 10th verse again the Kohela says here he says for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he. You see, that word dispute is to, means to contend or to discern. He said, this man, this man with all of his wealth, with all of his wisdom, with all of these things, he does not, he's not able to see, he's not able to get a hold of God. 
And this is the thing that Job was talking about. Look back, please, in the book of Job. And chapter 9 of the book of Job. Job was a great man. Job was a man blessed by God with wealth. Job was a man blessed by God with honor. Job was a man blessed by God with a long life. And then God took the blessings away. And Job wallowed in mire and suffering. And here's what he said, because he came to realize what he really needed. What his real need was. Look at it. In verse 25 of chapter 9, he said, Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They slip like a reed boat, like an eagle that swoops on its prey. Though I say I will forget my complaints, I will leave off my sad countenance and be cheerful, just like the rest of you. You know, we take a course on how to be cheerful. We take a course on how to get along with people and enrich our lives. And we go out and we take this uh, psychological theory and that psychological theory, and that's going to teach us to really enjoy life. He says, that's what I'll do. But then he ran into another problem. Look at it. Verse 28. I am afraid of all my pain. Pain comes, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. What's more? He said, I know that I will not I know that thou wilt not acquit me. I am accounted wicked. Why then should I toil in vain? If I should wash myself with snow and cleanse my, cleanse my hands with lye, yet thou wouldst plunge me into the pit, and my own clothes would abhor me. He said, you tell me I have to relate to God. You tell me these, God's given me wealth. God's given me children. God's given me long life. But how can I have joy? I don't get joy out of them. I have to be have God with me. But wait a minute. I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. How can I relate to God? How can God have anything to do with me? Though I wash myself with snow, though I wash my hands with lie, God will still not forgive me. And he went on to point out his real problem in verse 32. For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. And here's it is. Listen. There is no umpire between us who can lay his hand upon us both. He said, I have my wealth. I have my family. I have my life. But I do not have joy. And I know that to have joy, I must have God. But I am filled with sin, and how can I relate to God? He said, there's no one, no one, who can put his hand on God, put his hand on me, and draw us together. That was Job's theology. That was the Kohelet theology. But ours is not merely about life under the sun, it's life under the sun with the sun. Will you turn with me to Hebrews? And will you close with me in looking at this message? 
here from the viewpoint of Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. And when you look at verse 25, Hence also he is able to save forever. Now this version has, he is able to save forever. Those of you who have the King James Version, it says he is able to save from the uttermost. The word actually means forever and from everything. Forever and from everything. Not only is it a time word, it's a, it's, it's a word of circumstances. He is able to save us from anything, from any problem, from any situation, and forever. Why? Well, first of all, notice who he saves. Those who draw near to God for him. And why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Today, we have one in the heavens, Jesus Christ, who is a man. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. We have a man in the heavens who stands at the right hand of God, who is able to put his hand on God and his hand on me. Before he went there, he took all of our sin, every single one of our sins, and washed them away in his blood. Then he gave us his own cloak of righteousness and clothes us in that. Now he brings us to God. And night and day he's praying to maintain for us this relationship with God. And one of the things that he did when he was arrived up there at the right hand of the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit to live in our lives. And now, you and I have been restored to what Adam lost. Adam, God would come down and God would relate to him. You and I live with God in our hearts every day. Because Jesus died for us and took away all of our sins. And Jesus has brought us to God. And he is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father, night and day, praying for us. And the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And now we have a personal relationship with God. We not only have the wealth, the children, the life, we have God with us. Colossians 1.27. What is the great mystery? What is the great hope of glory? Christ in you. The hope of glory. That's what you need. Are you here with wealth? Are you here with fame? Are you here with life? And you haven't been enjoying it and wondering why? Because you don't have a personal relationship with the one who brings the blessing. The blessings do not bring joy. The blessings do not bring satisfaction. He is the only one who does that. He must be with you. You must have him. You must have a relationship with him. And this is what happens to too many Christians. Oh, how often it happens in our lives. What is it? We accept Christ. 
we receive the Holy Spirit. And hallelujah, we're saved. And we begin memorizing Scripture, and we begin praying, and oh, what a, how sweet it is to walk with Jesus. And we get our eyes off. And we say, oh, if I could save a little bit more money. Oh, if my family would be just a little bit better. Oh, if I could only have this or that. We don't realize it. We haven't done anything really seriously wrong. But things get in the way of Bible reading. Things get in the way of praying. Blessings come between us and God. We come respectably carnal. We become respectably carnal. Oh, no one in the church rises up and says, Oh, they're sinning, a terrible sin. Let's, let's excommunicate them. No, 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 no. We're respectable in our carnality. We have our wealth. We have our children. We have our life. And we ain't got any joy. Because we're on a street that's going nowhere. Many other people are on that street. It's Main Street, see. But our lives have stalled. Our spiritual lives have stalled out. And joy, real moments of joy, are few and far between. Oh, we have our games that we flip off to to have some fun. We use our things to give us a couple of minutes of pleasure. But the joy is not there because though we have been brought and saved and the Holy Spirit is within us, we're not walking in the Spirit. We're walking in the flesh. May God open our eyes to see that we're on a street that's going nowhere. 